Anyway, let's uh, get started here. I, I have a feeling this will be our last lesson on uh, angels, uh, devil, and demons. And today we're uh, focusing especially on devil and demons. We had started talking about that last time with Revelation chapter uh, 6. Uh, not 6, I'm sorry. Let me, uh, Revelation 12. 12, yes, not 6. 12, where uh, we're, we were reading about uh, the woman and the dragon. Um, where we read this uh, dramatic image, this vision that John was given about this war in heaven between the dragon and his angels, that is the devil and his angels, and uh, the forces of heaven led by Michael, where the devil's chief mission was to try to um, destroy the church, this woman, who was going to, in process of giving birth to this child, namely Jesus, and failing that, being cast down from heaven, then uh, we kind of were picking up, we just had stopped there about um, the ramifications of this, that there were this huge host of de angels who had followed the devil. How many we don't know, Revelation kind of gives you this picture language of a third of the stars was swept down by the tail of the dragons, which might be a picturesque way of saying the, the, a third of the angels followed Satan in his fall, which again isn't necessarily even saying, therefore, that Revelation is trying to say exactly 33% of the angels followed Jesus. It's simply picture language to give you the idea that the devil rebelled against God and against God's church and against God's Christ um, for reasons that aren't specified, by the way. It doesn't say too much here about that, but... Uh, is ultimately cast down by uh, the rest of the angels, by the forces of the angels that were loyal to God, led by Michael, um, of course, who were acting with the power of God and able to cast the devil down. And then we were about to turn to what the devil now does, that he's lost his place in heaven. Let's just quickly uh, go and read. We're just going to use this kind of a, as a, to give us a basic idea of what the devil is up to. Verse, we already kind of know the answer, but it's worth seeing it from the scriptures. Verses 13 down uh, through, well, I think, yeah, we'll go 13 all the way up to uh, 17. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time times and a half a time out of, the, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right, so um, what is so after the devil is cast out of heaven after following his rebellion, what is the devil? Uh, first of all, where is the devil's primary sphere of activity now? Earth. Earth, right. He's active on the earth, and what is his goal on the earth at this point? Seeing that he's already lost the war, so to speak, the child is born, um, the Christ is ruling in the heaven, as we just saw through verses last week with verses 10 through 12, so on and so forth. So what does he decide to try to do now that he's limited to what he can do on earth? Destroy it. 
he goes after the woman. And remember, who is the woman, by the way? Right. Well, not in this case, not necessarily Eve per se. Um, it's almost certainly a symbol of the ch- the woman is almost certainly symbolic of the church throughout all the ages. Um, so the dragon is there on earth trying to pursue the ch- the woman and all who had given birth to the male child, that is to Jesus, taking the idea that Adam and Eve were the first members of the church, uh, that is the first people called to be faithful to God and were faithful to God um, and trusted in him, who uh, God gave the promise of the offspring through, and all the subsequent generations of those who were faithful to God, the people of Israel, were leading towards the birth of Christ, right? And then, but once Christ has uh, completed his work and so on and so forth, um, the woman remains in Revelation, and the woman remains in the, the church remains on the earth as it ever has, continuing to call out to faithfulness to God and to rely on God. And uh, in a certain sense, as it says, the devil is pursuing all her other children. Who are the other children of the church? Well, every individual Christian, right? Makes sense so far? We track him. And so that's what the, ter- the devil is trying to do. He goes to make war with the people who have faith in Christ. Um, to try to destroy them. Um, We could get into all these other things about what all this symbolizes with the serpent spewing water like a river, and so on and so forth, but one of the key takeaways here is the devil is working very hard to destroy the woman, but is he completely able to destroy the woman? What keeps happening every time the dragon does something to try to destroy the woman? Miraculously, right, he's thwarted. Um, This is kind of, again, an image of how God continues to preserve miraculously his church against the worst assaults of Satan. Despite all of his power, despite all of his uh, angels working with him, despite all of the ways he tries to destroy the church on earth, can he ever succeed? No, God continuously will step in, as he always done, and will through the end of time. So that just as Jesus says um, in the book of Matthew, when he after Peter makes that first confession of Christ, Jesus says to him, on this rock I will build my church, and uh, the gates of hell itself will never prevail against it. Water testing? All right. You guys do that a lot more than I thought you did. Oh, he just is in and out, and I never notice him. Anyway, um, so that's what the devil is doing. Um, He's constantly at work to try to destroy and undermine and overthrow the people who have faith in Christ. And by the way, he has so much power and sway as he tries to do this that Jesus himself even gives some interesting titles to uh, the devil. Uh, For instance, in his talk with his disciples in the book of John from chapters 14 and following as he's preparing to uh, go to the cross, He refers to the devil repeatedly as the prince of this world. He says, now is the prince of this world overcome, prince of this world stands condemned, and so on and so forth. Jesus very much talks as though the devil has real power in this world, and in a very certain real sense, even rules over the world. That is to say, most of the world follows after him willingly. Not that there's a whole world full of overt Satanists and devil worshippers, it turns out there aren't all that many of those around. But who, are, who do people follow when they turn away from Christ and refuse to trust in him? Ultimately, they're giving in to the temptation, the leadership of Satan. 
His primary job is to turn people from faith. That's his primary goal. And so that's, in a very real sense, everybody under this world who stands outside of faith is under the kingdom of Satan and under the power of, as Jesus calls him, the prince of this world, or as Paul calls him, the prince of the power of the air, and all these other lofty titles that illustrate he's got real power and real teeth, so to speak. But for all that, uh, scary, as hard as work as he is, powerful as he is, can he actually overcome? No. If he could, he'd be called the king instead of the prince. Good point. <laughs> um, Jesus has the kingdom. Um, the, uh, the devil, he is not able to overcome Christ. He's not able to overcome the church. And in fact, this is one of the reasons we confess very boldly, frequently, and often that the devil has no real power over us. He might be able to affect certain things which make life difficult. He might be able to whisper temptations into your ear, but does he have the power to separate you from Christ? No, he cannot do that. It is simply beyond him. Um, the only way the devil is able to separate people from Christ is not by simply making you go away from Christ, but by what? The best he can do is tempt you to turn your back on Christ just as he could had to do with Adam and Eve. Did the devil cause Adam and Eve to sin? In the sense of twisted their arm and forced them to do it so that they had no that the devil was really the one who sinned in the fall. They chose to listen to the devil rather than to God. It was a cunning lie, no doubt, but they had the truth of God to hold to. You have the truth of God to hold to. You have the promises of Christ himself that your sins are forgiven, that you are his child, that he will overcome death, that he will work through all things, good, bad, or indifferent, to bring you to his kingdom. And uh, so you know what the truth is, despite all the lies and the very many ways that the devil is able to paint the world around you to make his lies more believable, that God doesn't actually love you, that you're too big of a sinner, that... Uh, you will get to heaven if you're a good person. That uh, clearly all these horrible things means God has turned his back on you, isn't able to help you, whatever else. All of those lies are simply that. Lies that try to lead you to turn away from the promises that Christ has given you. But the devil can't make you do that. The devil can only try to make a case to you. Um, so his power is supremely limited. In that case, I want to turn quickly to uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Just to, because we've already said, we don't know exactly when Satan's rebellion happened. Um, we know that it almost certainly happened after the world was created, but before the fall. Uh, that just seems to make sense. I mean, obviously Satan was there in the garden to tempt them. Therefore, he had already fallen. But he didn't exist before creation. He was one of the creatures God created. Even though he was created as an angel of light, he rebelled um, against God, as is, we've already talked about and uh, clearly demonstrated. But 1 Timothy 3 does give us perhaps, and we'll say simply perhaps, something about why the devil rebelled. We don't, uh, we don't know any of the specifics, but there is... Um, Something in there's occasional allusions that give you a, a hint about what Satan's caused Satan's rebellion. First Timothy, chapter three, verse six. 
Interestingly, um, by the way, the context is Timothy, Paul is writing Timothy to give him instruction about who is fit to be a pastor. Um, and so he's given this whole list about traits that should be true of this person. And in verse 6, he makes an incidental statement about the devil. Somebody want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. All right. So, saying pastors shouldn't be recent converts. No doubt recent converts. Have you ever met a recent convert, by the way? An adult one? What's that? <laughs> may have. Most of you guys probably know cradle to the grave kinds of Christians, right? But there are adult converts. Um, have you ever met any? Like genuine adult converts? One thing that tends to be true about them is they are, I suppose the phrase to use is, on fire for Jesus. Because what you've kind of grown up with and grown into, to them, it's almost like the difference of between being in a marriage for 30 years versus falling in love at the beginning of the marriage. How, how is the couple at the beginning of the marriage? Honeymoon phase. We love each other with an undying passion of devotion that will never flag. And at 30 years, do you wake up every morning and just sit there serenely staring at Cleo and say, Oh, let me count the ways. Every wrinkle upon your brow is a line of my love for you. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> 52. Well, fair enough. 52. Point being, it's different, right? Between the recently married and the long since married. Not to say that the long since married don't have a genuine love. They have a battle-tested love, um, you might say. Whereas the new converts have an untested faith. And uh, as it says, can very quickly um, become conceited about how strong, how faith fervent and uh, loving they are in the Lord. And uh, what's the, what does he say this conceit can lead to? The same judgment as who? The devil. As a general rule of thumb, probably new converts, not to say they couldn't be good pastors, it's just to say probably not prudent to throw them into that responsibility right off the bat, lest pride, conceit, and so forth come. And, there, and this is the point I really want to focus on, the way Paul incidentally links um, this this tendency towards conceit and pride as the thing that's led to the condemnation of the devil gives us a hint that perhaps what led to Satan's rebellion was ultimately some kind of pride and conceit in his uh, position, his grandeur, his glory, maybe some kind of jealousy about over God's power and wisdom and dominion and grace that made his own uh, self-esteem um, damaged. But point being, it seems that uh, the scriptures are implying, at least, that pride was uh, at the base of Satan's fall. I suppose Proverbs wasn't lying necessarily about either angels or people when it said pride cometh before a fall. But uh, just, it's an interesting hint. It's only a hint, but it's a worthwhile hint. All right, then let's dive into uh, probably what's the most fascinating to a lot of people today. Since we've talked about the origin of Satan, who he is, the origin of the demons and devils. By the way, we've already talked. Angels who basically followed Satan in his rebellion set themselves against God. So they are angels, but they're evil counterparts. They've simply rebelled from their proper role of serving God and turned towards following Satan, who is at their head, who uh, leads them and who they follow, but they follow in trying to disrupt, destroy, distort the life, the well-being, and especially the 
faith of people in the world. And this gets into a, a whole lot of questions about people have, especially they're just curious. Well, well, how do devil, demons and the devil do all these things? Give me some examples of how you, you might think, or what you, you commonly hear at least, that the devil, the demons, are actively involved in this world to destroy and bring a separation between you and God. Evidence is pretty clear. I mean, you don't have to look around very long in our society and, and see the results of what's going on. So, you know, you want to take each specific case, I don't know, maybe kind of different. Well, just general things. What kind of general activities do you suppose the devil and his evil angels get up to? I wouldn't be surprised they've not had a hand in the abortion issue. Okay. So you're you're willing to say they, they might even in some ways be driving some of these bigger, widespread tendencies even among people. Okay. Um, any other thoughts? What are simple things like other activities on the Sunday besides going to church? Okay. Leading, tempting people, we'll say, to do things that uh, are less than helpful to their faith. And by the way, that's a good example because it's not necessarily like, uh, again, the whole shoulder angel, shoulder devil, where the one is clearly telling you to do something awful, and the other is clearly telling you to do the more boring, but obviously good thing. People don't usually say, I'm going to avoid church because, man, I want to party and drink and do drugs instead. No, they usually mean something like, I'm just really, I think it's really important to my family to be able to take this time with them to make sure that they, they get to this sports event so that they're better set up for life. I'm, I'm doing my duty as a parent by, avoid, by, by putting church to the side this time. It's a temptation that, of the devil to even use one command of God against another as though they're incompatible and to choose one kind of love over another love, presenting himself as an angel of light, but tempting you individually. Now, both of those, by the way, are definitely very well attested in Scripture. Individual temptation, I think everybody is aware that if you believe in the devil in any sense, that's probably your primary view of the devil, that he tempts you individually and specifically, right? Whether it's avoiding church, little, quote-unquote, things like avoiding church on Sunday, um, taking a little extra time for yourself and neglecting some duties, all those little things, or to bigger things, like gripping people with this whole spirit of a political movement that ultimately leads towards destruction of society or individuals in society. There's no doubt that Scripture paints the devil and his minions as actively involved in trying to do those kinds of things. Any others that come to mind? By the way, that, the first, that one Gala mentioned, probably most people who believe in the devil would agree with. He tempts us. Um, the one that Bill mentioned, though, you'd probably find a lot fewer people who would be willing to chalk that kind of stuff up to the devil. They, they like to think of the devil as only one-on-one -on -one kind of tempting you, but more natural political forces that don't have anything particularly demonic behind them that are driving it. That is to say, they like to, to, to leave the devil out of those kinds of bigger things. But any other things that you think that the devil and demons might get up to? Well, if he wasn't busy all the time, we wouldn't need communion. No, that is for sure. I mean, 
it's it's good to say if God says I the Lord your God neither slumber nor sleep it seems like neither does the devil <laughs> he is constantly at work doing all of these things he does as are all of his minions and so we need to be constantly strengthened by the grace the and the sacraments and the word that God uses to give us the strength of faith and confidence that allows us to resist the devil. Going back to the whole Ephesians 6 thing, where Paul talks about how we need to dress ourselves in the whole armor of God and able to resist these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places and all the th ways they're trying to destroy us. And if you look at the armor of God that he talks about, almost all of it is about trust in Christ, hold to his word, hold to his righteousness, um, hold faith. That's what will allow you to withstand the assaults of the devil. Not, by the way, big, huge uh, ceremonies like exorcisms or uh, lots of weird little trinkets around your house that the devil is scared of, something like that. It's just faith in the word and uh, all of the means of grace that God gives us. Well, let's, uh, let me ask you, I'll just ask you a couple of things. Now, before I do that, let's actually go this way. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because the scripture actually talks, well, there's two big ways that the scripture overtly talks about the devil um, being involved beyond tempter. I mean, that one, uh, we don't even need to go to verses for. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 10, yeah. Another one that we won't go to specific verses about, but we'll, we'll come back to a little later, is possession. The reason we won't go to specific verses is we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. I think you all may remember, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, it comes up <laughs> frequently and often in all four of the Gospels that people are actually possessed by evil spirits in the direct sense of being physically inhabited and to a certain extent controlled by those evil spirits. So demon possession is one that uh, the scriptures talk about. And we're going to come back to a little bit just because it's interesting, especially uh, has the curiosity in our day. But there's another one that's a little lesser known, but is very important. I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my friends, flee from adultery. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of, the, of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right. Context here. Um, Paul is um, dealing with an ongoing problem in uh, Corinth, among the Corinthian Christians, 
about the question of whether it's appropriate for a Christian to eat um, food that has been sacrificed to idols or part of food that's been sacrificed to idols. So, of course, Greek culture in the time, they're pagans, right? They worship all these many different gods and they make sacrifices to these gods. And then uh, what they would do with the leftover bits, not all of a cow was burnt up to, the, to that uh, god. Parts of it would be uh, distributed for a feast at the sacrifice, and then leftovers would be sold at the market. Um, no doubt indicated that it was something that was used in the sacrifice. And uh, the question was, well, here we are, we're Christians. People obviously are already suspicious of us. Uh, the fact that we worship this new god to them that uh, seems to be exclusive of their gods. And on the one hand, they're trying to invite us to participate in these feasts we always participated in. And sometimes we come across uh, people who are offering us food that they bought that's sacrificed to idols. What are we supposed to do with that? Way, uh, this long answer to trying to work through the problem, um, one of the many things, Paul also does say, eat with thanksgiving and faith in God and don't lay any questions on your mind about whether what you're eating was sacrificed to an idol or not. If somebody just offers you some meat, don't ask questions about it. Eat it. Give thanks to God because, you know, it's not really anything. It's just... Uh, it's just food offered to something that doesn't really exist. Eat with faith, and it's fine. But he also is making the further point that all, overtly all participating, consciously, explicitly, overtly participating in a feast where you know the food is all being offered to this idol, um, where you know what's going on, it's not probably good for people with weak faith on the one hand, and on the other hand, think of your own devotion to the Lord. After all, what is it we're doing at the Lord's table? Paul makes the argument. He says, well, you're actually eating the body and blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is a, it has fellowship, is the technical word. It participates in the body of Christ. The, the cup, the wine that you drink, what is it? it's a participation in the blood of Christ. When you eat and drink the Lord's table, you actually are receiving body and blood of Christ. Now then, can you do that? and turn around and then go to a table where there's this food offered to an idol. And he, do, he does say the idol is nothing, but then what does he also say? What are they offering it to? To demons. Things that are overtly opposed to God. So how can you, on the one hand, go and participate in the Lord's table, and then turn around and with full knowledge and conviction um, participate in a meal that's meant to be dedicated to um, not just a false god, but a demon. Uh, there again, uh, the, the basic point he's trying to make is flee from idolatry. Don't uh, either give anyone the impression that these idols are okay, and don't, for your own sake on that score, try to hedge your bets and appease both God and these idols. And in the course of this, what does he say about the idols? He says they are actually demons. That's an interesting statement. On the one hand, he said they aren't anything. What he means when he says they aren't anything is to say they're false gods. They don't actually exist. There's not a Zeus up there on Olympus um, hurling down lightning bolts. There's only one God. There are not all these other lesser gods out there. There is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what they're worshiping is a delusion. Does that mean that, uh, well, I should say, but then he turns around and says, it may be a delusion, but it's also, you might say, a deception perpetrated on them by demons who are happy to lure people into worshiping them. One of the very interesting facets about this, um, in the early church, 
uh, way up for the first several centuries. You know what the official religion of the Roman Empire was for the first several hundred years um, after Christ came on the scene? Some kind of paganism. The Romans worshipped many gods. And church fathers would often have to come to uh, confront people when they said, well, our gods are giving us all kinds of protections. We have all these poems and all these uh, writings of people who have encountered the gods, who have had visions of the gods. What do you Christians say about that? We have experience with ours. And you know what the Christians almost invariably said? They didn't say, you're delusional. They didn't say, well, clearly that's all made up. They said, I have no doubt you witnessed a lot of these things, that these things happened in a very real sense. But what you were almost certainly witnessing is demons making a display for the purpose of leading your hearts astray and putting your devotion in them rather than in the one true God. That is to say, they did not deny that the demons were even performing actual favors for these people, protecting them from certain things, giving them benefits, harming people that they would sacrifice to the gods to try to get the gods to harm. Magic, spells, they assumed all of that is probably real, but you're deceived about what's really going on by it. It's not um, that this is all made up juju, it's that these are almost certainly the devil and his false angels putting on the mask of these gods for the sake of leading you into a religion that will not help you. And they are happy to, give you, to do great signs and wonders to lead you astray. After all, Paul also elsewhere in Thessalonians, for instance, says that, uh, great, that uh, Antichrist and the man of lawlessness will come and will do great signs and wonders so that if it were possible, they would even lead the elect astray. If it were possible, fortunately it's not. My point is, the early church, and certainly Paul himself very explicitly says, the demons are active in ways that they will present themselves as these false gods. Why would they do that? Well, not because the demons are really eager to be worshipped, probably. They might, who knows. But at the very least, to lead people, to give people a false hope that will lead them, keep them um, away from entertaining the true hope, which is Christ. Which is an interesting idea. Because uh, even all the way up, like I said, to famous theologians like Augustine, if you've ever heard of the City of God, probably one of the most famous and most influential books ever written by a Christian about uh, the relationship of the kingdom of God to the kingdom of the world. The first 11 chapters of this uh, huge book are dedicated to saying why the pagans are actually worshiping demons and how the demons work through uh, the rites of these pagans and through apparent miracles and visions and so forth to give the impression that they really are gods. Whereas today, what's our perspective about all these things? We just assume they're probably just suffering hallucinations. It's not the devil doing that thing. It's not demons. It's people in their own minds uh, cooking up false ideas for themselves. There were no magic spells. There were no miracles. There were no signs and wonders. And there certainly aren't anything that can't be explained by normal scientific phenomena today, either psychological or natural phenomena. In other words, we don't believe that the devil and the demons are actually working that way or capable of working that way or ever would. Why? Well, because we don't really believe the devil is quite that powerful. We believe in science, right? 
Who's right? I mean, it could be. There's no reason to assert this early church had to be right about all those arguments they made. Paul certainly speaks as though it's true that the demons were behind it all, but it doesn't go so far as to assert they were doing all these things. Are we right or are they right? It's a fair question. I would assert that uh, we're probably less right than we think we are. Um, we, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility to assert that one of the reasons we have so little evidence of that kind of phenomena these days is because what would it serve the devil, uh, how would it serve the devil's purpose to go to a people who are already prone to believe there are no, there is no supernatural, <laughs> that there is only our world and natural phenomena, and therefore very likely, less uh, likely to believe that there's some supernatural God in the sky pulling the strings in the world in any meaningful way, is that, would it be better for him to believe, to have people believe what we believe or what the people of old believed? That there are all kinds of supernatural, semi-divine, even divine forces at work all over the world, and we need to propitiate them, we need to devote ourselves to them, because they can make our life good, bad, or ugly at the drop of a hat. Fair to say, I mean, before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, there was no death, there was no sickness, right? There was nothing, I guess, but heavenly bliss. But you know, since then, there's all these things. I mean, would it be safe to say that all everything that afflicts us today is basically because of you know Satan and demons? Right. And, I mean, well, and that's that's exactly the rub. A lot of people want to say, no, it's just natural forces, maybe even natural consequences of sin, but not probably the, the result of supernatural forces. Um, I think you're right. It would be fair to say that Satan is perfectly capable of using natural forces and uh, manipulating them in ways that uh, lead us in bad directions. It's not to say that either this person is demon-possessed or they have a mental illness, it would probably be wiser and certainly more fitting with how the scripture tends to talk about these things to say, yes, <laughs> it is a mental illness, no doubt also uh, due to the influence and power of those spiritual forces ruling over the world that like to try to bend and force and twist things in ways that afflict us. Satan works through means just like God does. He works through people to tempt you. Um, he can certainly work through other natural phenomena to tempt you. Um, he can also do supernatural things. You've got the example of Job. I mean, when, when Christ allowed Satan to, to do all those things to him and his family, I mean... Right. It wasn't that the devil appeared to him and said, Now I afflict you. What happened? Raiders suddenly came and stole his people, his flocks, and his, and a big wind came. And what did it do? It knocked down the uh, house on his people. Satan, very directly in the book of Job, worked through all these very natural phenomena to do those things to Job. And that's just explicitly stated. That is, it's, and it, it's our lack of faith in the supernatural in general that prevents us from attributing to the possibility or to ascending to the possibility that there are supernatural evil forces like Satan who are capable of working through natural forces to bring these horrible things about. 
And that's an important uh, problem for us. Because, well, kind of like the, have you ever read the screw tape letters or heard of them? Sure. C.S. Lewis, uh, you might have heard of him. Nar Chronicles of Narnia, Lie and Witch and Wardrobe. He also wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. Not saying it's like a firm guide of theology of demons, but it, it, it's, it's interesting. It's this elder tempting demon writing advice to his nephew um, who's learning the ropes of how to be a good tempter. And at uh, one point he says, the last thing you want to do is try to convince them to believe in things like magic and miracles. They already don't. <laughs> Because if you get them believing that, it's just not that far of a jump to believe that there might be a God. <laughs> Keep them in the dark and, let, and do your best to make them convinced that there is nothing beyond the scientific secular world they, they're so happy at. Because that is a great buffer against actually contending with the idea there might be a God above all things. So that's, uh, it's a worthwhile thought. Interesting. But worthwhile, interesting thoughts aside, the scriptures clearly say the devil works through natural phenomena to work against our things. And the scriptures clearly insist that behind these false gods that see, the uh, Greeks and Romans were worshiping were demons masquerading as those things. That's just something that the scriptures very clearly seem to indicate. And we would do well to remember that as we're trying to deal with problems in our own time. On that score, let's spin back to the uh, topic of demon possession. Uh, well, actually, before I do that, you could also say, how about all those people who are convinced they've seen ghosts and uh, paranormal activity? Now, by and large, I'm, I'm enough of a, a secular mindset skeptic kind of guy, too. My default thing is, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, I, despite what I all just said, I'll fully admit I am entrenched in the uh, immediately skeptical bias of, yeah, sure, whatever. When I hear people say they've seen demons, they've they've uh, they've been possessed, they they've had phenomena like that happen. But there's a part of me that also recognizes that from a scriptural worldview, it is entirely possible. <laughs> But the devil, it's not that they're ghosts. Let's just assert right now, the scriptures deny the possibility of ghosts. Um, scriptures assert fairly clearly that when we die, our spirits depart to um, await their final destination. They are no longer capable of interacting with us in any direct way. But it is entirely possible, since clearly it's been done in the past, that demons present themselves in ways that will be awe-inspiring and lead people away from a real firm hope in Christ, such as presenting myself as Zeus, as Hermes, as Hera, as Thor, as whatever. Why couldn't they also present themselves as answering a Ouija board, as your great Aunt Mabel, who's come to uh, tell you all sorts of things about heaven that aren't particularly scriptural and kind of tear your heart away from actually hoping you'll be with Christ and more hoping about being with Aunt Mabel. Or who give you so much uh, hope that Aunt Mabel is there with your house giving you comfort and hope in life that you just kind of forget about everything else and start to be skeptical about what the pastor is saying from the Bible that seems to imply that Aunt Mabel may not actually be with you. It's a very huge stack of dominoes that the demons can set up by doing that that inch by inch lead you away from hope in Christ. Or for that matter, why couldn't they, in theory, 
act like poltergeists and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying every time you hear somebody say something like that, jump on the bandwagon and say, yep, probably a demon. What I'm saying is it's also probably not healthy to have a, a view that, no, this person is literally just crazy about that. The devil is capable of great deceptions, and so are his minions. And it's worthwhile to consider those things. By the way, and I want to use that as a bridge jumping point, um, but before I do that, I should ask, any thoughts about any of that? By the way, it's one of the reasons that we, uh, we pastors almost always very firmly encourage people against um, using Ouija boards or things like that. Not because we think you're actually going to communicate with the dead, but because we're worried you're going to communicate with the devil. And the devil will use it as a great opportunity to start you down a rabbit hole that will not lead you to good purposes. It's why Luther, by the way, in the explanation to the second commandment, you shall not misuse your name of the Lord your God, um, uses that phrase which has been variously translated through our catechism editions, use satanic arts in older transition, use witchcraft. <laughs> why? Well, because we don't want to uh, turn to other names than God's to get things done that only God can do. And the assumption there by Luther, very much in his day, was that you could appeal to other forces besides God and get things to happen. Because there were forces like the devil and his angels who were more than happy to work within their power to do those kinds of things. And it's why when you have all these modern Wiccans and witches, by the way, it's a hugely growing movement these days. I've known personally people who turned from Christianity to Wiccanism who are convinced they've casted spells, who are convinced they uh, see auras and all kinds of things, all of a sudden, once they started on the Wiccan path. Maybe they are simply mentally ill. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> the devil is also allowing things to happen or causing things to happen to help lead them astray. Either way, it's not a good situation for the person and it needs address. Um, the question, of course, is how do you address it? do want to get to this last thing, so I'll just move it along to that. Let's talk back about demon possession. How many of you believe that the devil possesses people today, or demons do? Raise your hands if you do. You don't discount it. You're open to the fact theoretically, right? Sure, sure. Um, how many of you think that in most cases it's probably not true that they're possessed? Okay, raising your hand. Okay. Um, again, I'm probably in that camp too. My immediate gung-ho stance when I hear somebody say something like that is to say, I doubt it. I'm pretty sure something else is going on. You probably need a trip to the psychiatrist more than you need a trip to... I mean, you will need a trip to uh, the pastor for prayer and all of that, but not because the devil is actually possessing you. It's because you've obviously got some things that you're going through that could use some spiritual guidance, but you need a psychiatrist. <laughs> That's the basic assumption, right? I want to point out, first of all, that uh, was demon possession present in the scriptures? Obviously. It, Unless you're going to go to be one of those historical critical people who say, well, the scriptures were just describing things they couldn't understand in terms they could understand. That kid wasn't actually demon-possessed. He was an epileptic. That one guy wasn't actually possessed by an evil spirit that made him deaf and mute. They just called the evil spirits 
to refer to medical conditions that we know better now today. It's not to say they were lying. It's just to say they didn't know what they were talking about. And so they put it in the terms they could understand. There are plenty of Christians who take that tack. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, by the way, does not take that tack. It assumes that the scriptures weren't just being naive, that they were being honest. So if we're taking that tack, we have to assume it's possible because it actually happened. If you had to take a guess, how long ago, just how many years ago, do you think it has been since the Lutheran, or I should say, since Christians tended to stop believing that demon possession is a real probability in our time? You think, uh, let me throw out some dates. Uh, do you think Luther would have thought that uh, possessions were uh, a real live issue to deal with? How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. Probably do. I think, I think he, he would have, yeah. yes. Okay. You're correct. He definitely, he wrote several things about how he himself had even encountered demon-possessed people. And all kinds of advice about how you deal with people who are actually demon-possessed. All right, let's move it up a little bit. How about uh, 1850s? Do you think that was really a, a live issue? Only around the time, not long after this con before this congregation was founded, that your uh, great-great-grandpa or great-great-great-grandpa um, may have been thought, yeah, demons are probably possessing people around us. How many? Raise your hands if you think yes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say when you're going around then, but... Fortunately, people wrote stuff. Um, how many of you know who CFW Walther was, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we all know. Good old CFW, Law and Gospel, Church and Ministry, first president of the LCMS. He uh, wrote a lot of really cool things that uh, we still use today because they're just really good, like his distinction between Law and Gospel. Every pastor through the seminary has to read that. Church and Ministry. Every pastor has to read it because it's almost never been said better. Um, he also wrote this really handy thing that... Uh, we don't read in, but we reference a lot in seminary called pastoral theology, which is basically a handbook for how pastors should do their tasks. And he's got one section devoted to who pastors should visit. I just want to read you some of this. A preacher also has the duty to visit those members of his congregation who, while not physically sick, are nevertheless being visited in other ways by severe misfortune, or who find themselves in particular danger and distress of soul. Okay, and that seems pretty straightforward. Who stand in or who stand in danger of falling into a false religion. Fair enough. Or who are experiencing severe afflictions of their own heart, the world, and the devil, such as d doubts about the divine truth, despair, sacrilegious or suicidal thoughts. All pretty straightforward stuff. You say, sure, why wouldn't the pastor go visit? That's, that's all standard par for the course stuff. People who are entangled in dangerous lawsuits. Well, there's one that you probably don't hear every day, but you can, uh, you can see why. People who fall under the strong suspicion of a serious offense or who have already been put in prison on account of the same. Fair enough. Who have fallen into melancholy or madness. Who are physically possessed by Satan. We're instructed. Visit the people who have been physically possessed by Satan. And he says a lot. I'll just read you highlights from this. Concerning, in particular, those physically possessed by the devil, the preacher must know that physical possession can be inflicted by God, even on devout children of God, i.e. baptized, firmly believing Christians. He quotes, J.W. Byer writes, The activities of Satan also include physical possession, 
by virtue of which Satan inhabits the body not only of godless, but also of devout people, according to his essence and is active in it with divine permission. Notice it's always stated God is allowing this to happen, but Satan is possessing people, even firm Christians. Namely, when God either immediately or immediately permits people to be subject to Satan. However, although the goal of this possession on the part of Satan is in part to harm and ruin the possessed person himself, in part other people, so again, just to summarize the same, Satan's goal when he possesses people is to harm the person he's possessed or to harm the people who witness the possession. It says, yet on the part of God, who is the one who permits this possession, and through it either inflicts his severe judgments on grievous sin, or reproves and tests the devout with physical chastisement, the goal is the revelation of his power, his justice, goodness, and the repentance, faith, and salvation of people, if not of the possessed themselves, at least of others, namely of the eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. Just to break that down into a friendlier English, it says, God allows possession, and he, whatever Satan's purposes, these are his goals, either to severely punish sin, or to test and refine the faith of people who are faithful. And the goal will be, therefore, to reveal his power, justice, and goodness on the one hand, and to bring and strengthen repentance and faith and good works, either on the, of the person who has been possessed or the people who are witnessing the possessed. Notice this, a couple of things. They assume very firmly that demon possession is real and happens. The pastors need to address it and need to bear in mind that when demon possession happens, yes, the demons are trying something, but who's ultimately even in control and even allows and sometimes sends the demons to possess people? God. It's an interesting way these Lutheran forebears of our thought, um, which is to say they were deeply convinced that God works all things and works all things together for good. And then it goes on. The actual hallmarks of physical possession, in other words, the symptoms, the signs you can use to say, here's possession. Knowledge of foreign languages, as well as of arts and sciences that the possessed have never learned before, and that uh, once they have been freed from possession, no longer know. Two, knowledge and announcement of things that are concealed and occurred elsewhere in far-off places, as well as sometimes of future things. That is, they could even tell the future for you. Superhuman or unnatural strength and power. Accurate portrayal of the voices of birds, sheep, bulls, etc. without having the necessary organs. That is, they can make sounds that they shouldn't physically be able to make. To this should be added vulgar language, monstrous gestures, horrible screaming, blaspheming God and mocking neighbors, raging and raving, both against one's own body and against observers. Physical possession can be recognized by these and similar signs, which nevertheless do not all appear at the same time in every possessed person, but sometimes more, sometimes less. And then it gives this little caveat. Nevertheless, particular care is required so that one does not mistake those afflicted with severe illness for possessed people. So it does acknowledge there might be severe illnesses which are not possession, which might look a little like possession. So you have to be careful about it. I'll go on just because it's really interesting. Say saying this again. Walther. Um, he's quoting other Lutherans occasionally, but he's quoting them as these are correct and good guidance. So bear in mind, this is official pastoral guidance for good pastoral care of people. 
Regarding the proper treatment of the physically possessed, Luther writes, so he's quoting Luther now, we should not now and also cannot drive out the devils with certain ceremonies and words as the prophets Christ and the apostles once did. In other words, he's taking a shot at Roman Catholic exorcism who go, if we just go through this right, you'll be saved from the demon. We should, we should pray in the name of Christ, earnestly admonish the church to pray that the dear God and Father of our dear Lord Jesus Christ might redeem the possessed person by his mercy. If only such prayer is done with faith in the promise of Christ in John 16, 23, then it is strong and powerful so that the devil must leave the person. I could cite countless examples of this. We cannot drive out evil spirits in any other way, nor do we have the ability to do it. The poor people possessed by the devil during the papacy were not freed from their evil by the art, words, and gestures which the exorcists used. He does not permit him, the devil does not permit himself to be driven out with plain words, such as, depart, you unclean spirit. Thus, the exorcists were not, also, were not serious about it. The power of God must do it, and must, must risk his life so that the devil makes him rather fearful. Hmm. Interesting stuff that Luther, and not so long ago Lutherans, took as a matter of course. It's only very recently that we stopped taking this as a matter of course and serious instruction. Um, I'm, I want to finish by reading this and then we'll close with the Lord's Prayer, but I'll also interject. We live in a nice Western secularized America where our assumptions make us hear this and say, what is wrong with these people almost? Or at least, this sounds a little hard to swallow. Do you know what the largest church body in Madagascar is currently? Not the LCMS, but Lutheranism, um, uh, kind of related to the Scandinavian Lutheran churches. Lutherans are roughly half of the population. You know what the other half of the population, I mean, there are some other very small denominations there at work, um, Baptists, Pentecostals, Roman Catholics, but they're a very, very small number of the population. You know what the other big religion is there? Animism. The idea that there are spiritual ancestors that we pray to, spirits in the water, spirits in the land, that we uh, can manipulate to give us favors or not. And you know what uh, a fundamental part of both mission work and pastoral care is down in Madagascar to this very day? Exorcism. Precisely because uh, they even have a whole order of people whose sole job is to go out to the country and host uh, uh, events where people who are possessed can come and have the spirits cast out of them through prayer and so forth. Because so many people uh, claim to be by, possessed because they actually invite spirits to possess them. And it leads them to do all kinds of crazy things, like try to drown themselves sometimes, or um, just all kinds of crazy things. This is well documented. This is not uh, me shooting off random hearsay. This is very well documented in a lot of sources that I can easily point to that are reputable sources, um, where basically the Lutheran church has taken the tack of, along with our usual word and sacrament ministry, we also do a huge amount of praying for these people and casting out spirits and admonishing people to leave the life behind and sometimes have to do repeat exorcisms because people fall into the old ways, pray for spirits to possess them because they liked the benefits they thought they were getting from it. My point in saying that is one of the reasons we believe that uh, this isn't the case or have this iner inherent bias against it is because we have convinced ourselves that it's not true. 
other cultures, which are very open to possession in general, seem to actually suffer from possession in general and seem to actually be helped by the church doing actual exorcism and that kind of thing. Um, why is that the case? Well, in our secular minds, we'd probably say psychology. They just uh, are getting their own biases confirmed and uh, that kind of stuff. Well, if you're talking biblically, it's entirely possible that uh, what's happening is exactly what's happened throughout history. The devil is going to put on the face that is most effective to bring people away from Christ. And in a culture like that, most effective is to actually possess people. Because they want to be possessed, thinking that these are beneficial spirits. Anyway, I'll, uh, I know we're over time, so let me finish by reading all of this. Um, this is Walther again, writing for Walther's sake. As sad as it is when pastors often believe that physical medication is the only remedy for possessed people, because they, these pastors take these people to be merely depressed, it should nevertheless not be denied that it is very often important also to use, aside from prayer and the word, physical medication against possession. Walther is saying, it's a travesty that pastors just assume that it's medical mental illness going on with people and only point them to medicine to help them. But by the same token, the idea that, we, that a person is physically possessed shouldn't preclude the idea on the necessity of using physical medication. He goes on to say, Don Hauer writes concerning this, and he's quoting this guy now. There are three regular remedies for possession. Medication, first. For just as that enemy cannot work without tools, that is, Satan needs means, that is, he works primarily through uh, elements in the human body, we must thus, first of all, take those tools away from him, which should be left to a physician and about which one should read. Um, putting this in modern uh, psychiatric parlance, it would be like saying, the devil is able to use your brain chemistry to afflict you. And so it's important to be able, it's actually useful in the cases of genuine possession, to send a person to a psychiatrist to get medications that will remove the tools of control that Satan has by forcing a balance of chemicals in the brain. Notice, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Yes, there is a genuine physical, mental, neurological problem going on because the devil is causing it. So treat it medically. But also, as he goes on to say, prayer, which must be done with the condition if it is pleasing to God this way. That is why no one may presume that he will certainly accomplish the expulsion of the devil. That is to say, prayer isn't like a magic formula that forces the devil to go away. Prayer is calling on God and God's good time and God's good pleasure to remove the possession. So we can't make it happen. We call on God to make it happen. Three, exorcism itself should also be used, which admittedly has its own power. But for, this, a, for such exorcism, a heroic faith is necessary. That is to say, it's not the ceremonies or the rites. It's the faith of the person in Christ, calling on Christ, which has not yet entirely disappeared even today. I think we can stop it there. It's food for thought. Why? We can look at this and say, well... These uh, not-too-distant Lutherans were still in a medically dark time, and therefore they're speaking out of ignorance, naivety about the way that the world actually works now that science has opened the way so that the world actually works. But they weren't exactly saying, it's God, not science. It's the devil, not science. They, well, they were very much saying, the devil works through the physical world, the structures of 
which science has opened up to us to do these things. They weren't either or thinkers. They were very much both ands, which seems more likely to be in line with what scripture actually teaches us about the way the world and the devil works. Either or or both and. Let's pray with the Lord, close with the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.